I have to tell you, David, I don't know if you remember this. Uh, I certainly do. Um, in 1999, uh, there was an opportunity on your team at SFX. And uh, I was working at GMR. Wait, is this time. another story? Is this another story where I didn't hire someone I should have hired? Because <laughs> I get those a lot. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, listen, so I remember where I was. I remember. And told me that, uh, um, you know, you're going with somebody else. But, you know, to be honest with you, for me, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I grew up in D.C. And I, I don't know that it was right for me to go home. I wanted to continue doing what I was doing. And sometimes things like that happen that are best for you in the long term. And, and uh, always admired you and what you did you know, for McDonald's and others. And so, uh, um, you know, enjoyed getting to know you. And, and uh, that's really my career. Well, I appreciate that. And I actually recall that we had the conversation about uh, uh, going a different direction. So um, not that I'm not that I'm happy to have that memory spark <laughs> right here. But listen, you your story is great. And you've obviously wait, Tim's going to say a real wise ass thing. I, I'm excited <laughs> about it. Jonathan, what you're saying is, is David has been instrumental in many people's success. By not hiring them. <laughs> no, no. Listen. By making poor hiring decisions. He has. Listen. He All right. Welcome to episode 53 of Wait, What? Sports Biz Chat with DP and McGee, the podcast where we take it sometimes irreverent. Sometimes cynical, and yes, even a sometimes serious look at the business of sports. I'm your co-host, Tim McGee. And I'm David Perrow. David, what's on your mind this week? Before I get into the first big story that I want to talk about, uh, today was actually a pretty big day. Um, we announced the new livery. Uh, it was revealed for the MoneyGram Haas F1 team, the first of the 10 teams to announce their livery for the 2023 Formula One World Championship Series. So it was a very exciting day and uh, just really excited about the way this car looks and uh, looking forward to a great season. Actually heading over to the UK uh, next week to capture a lot of content. So uh, it was a big day and I just thought I'd throw that out. Well, congratulations. You should pat yourself on the, the back for a, a job well done. And I know there's a lot more that you want to accomplish this year, but I also know how hard you've been working getting up to this point. So well, kudos and congratulations. I appreciate that, my friend. Um, so, NFC AFC Championship games this week, not surprisingly, did great on television. The numbers were good. Uh, the Chiefs, with their last second win over um, the Bengals, uh, drew 53 uh, million viewers, over 53 million viewers on CBS, uh, best on record uh, since the 2019 AFC Championship game. Um, not the best officiated game. <laughs> and I got this one wrong, by the way. I predicted that the Bengals would win, and I actually thought they were going to up until uh, the very end. Um, and then the Eagles, which I predicted this one right, um, defeated the 49ers in what wasn't a good game, <laughs> largely because the 49ers, uh, you were about to actually run a promotion and see if they can pull someone from the sidelines that could throw a football. Uh, but that was just kind of a ridiculous one-sided game. But it had pretty good numbers. Uh, as well, 47.5 million viewers. One of the things that I always find interesting about teams like the Chiefs, and we had Mark Donovan on earlier in the show's history last year, and, uh, you know, talk about what they have to do as a small market team. I mean, they have a superstar, obviously, in Patrick, Holm Patrick Mahomes, and, um, and they're playing the Cincinnati Bengals, another small market team. 
by NFL standards. And, you know, these teams just have such massive local following and have star power uh, in Joe Burrow and, uh, and Patrick Mahomes. So uh, a lot of, you know, drama and the fact that the game was itself good, despite the officiating, uh, I think kept people very, very intrigued throughout uh, the entire four quarters. The, the, the smartest thing the NFL, well, I shouldn't say this more. One of the smartest things the NFL has ever done is sharing TV money equally, right? Whether you're New York or Los Angeles or Green Bay or, you know, uh, Cincinnati, right? And it allows teams like the Bengals and the Chiefs to compete year in and year out on literally and figuratively and even playing field. Um but boy, I would not want to be the general manager of the San Francisco 49ers right now. You've got three quarterbacks who are hurt, all right? And if you're Jimmy Garoppolo, you're sort of sitting in the catbird seat right now because somebody's going to pay him a lot of money next year. Um, and I have a feeling, right? And I was like you. I was 50-50, but I got the opposite games right and wrong. I picked the Chiefs and the 49ers. And that, that, uh, that prediction went up after – Brock Purdy went out in the first series, but uh, Jimmy Garoppolo is going to get signed to a large contract next year. Probably my prediction is not with the 49ers um, simply because he doesn't know if he'll be first, second or third string quarterback going into camp next July. Whereas if he signs with a team where he knows he's going to start, hello, New York jets, potentially. Um, I think he's in a, in a catbird seat, but, um, but yeah, uh, fifty-three million, right? That's about half of what we're gonna see for the Super Bowl, right? Give or take, what's a couple of million people among friends? The ability to continue to grow obviously has has some limitations. That's why it's going to be important to see how, say, Sunday Ticket does with uh, on the YouTube platform. I I think it's going to be absolutely the perfect platform, by the way, for Sunday Ticket, uh, and I think it's going to be the first time where we see the real power uh, and uniqueness that a streaming platform can bring a little different than what I think MLS will do with, with um, Apple. Although I think that'll be exciting uh, or what MLB has done uh, with Apple as well. Uh, this will be, you know, kind of the real promise of what streaming can be uh, with all of these games available um, through its own YouTube channel uh, for, for um, Sunday ticket. I, I'm actually really excited to see how that's going to play out. Yeah, we, we were talking before we came on the air that uh, Anheuser-Busch has uh, three minutes of ads in, in the upcoming Super Bowl 57. Uh, and this is after they relinquished exclusivity in the beer category. I could imagine how many how many minutes of, of commercials they'd have if they were still exclusive. But right, rate card for that is $42 million, And you and I were talking before we came on the air that obviously – got some sort of discount given the amount of money they spend across NFL and uh, across the networks and across other sports. Um, but still, that's a significant investment um, in a single day of advertising. And yes, they'll, I'm sure they'll break it up over different, different spots or different brands, excuse me. Um, and I will make another prediction, right? The second one early in our show. Um, I, they will be first or second in the USA ad meter um, for best ads because they just consistently do great creative around the Super Bowl. Yeah, they sure do. But, they, you know, it's one of the fun things about this business and not that you or I are necessarily 
creative directors, but we certainly know what we like. And I'm looking forward to that post-Super Bowl episode where we get to talk about those ads that we like. And I agree with you. I think AB has always, you know, brought it uh, and they've put their agencies to the test. And you know the people that are working on those spots while they're working their asses off. Um, they uh, they they get excited about what can we bring and how can we break through and what can we do to disrupt and do things differently. And they've set so many, you know, uh, almost trends in the advertising business, largely around their Super Bowl advertising, mm -hmm. things that they do that then get copied everywhere. Uh, and you see them coming back until oftentimes they decide that the trend needs to change and then they set the new new tone. Yeah. Well, you and I are old enough to remember the days when, um, first of all, you couldn't see a Super Bowl spot before, before the game, right? Um, but remember, uh, Master Lock used to put virtually their entire marketing yeah. budget into a single ad run once during the Super Bowl, right? And the the iconic imagery of somebody shooting a master lock and lock holding. And all these years later, right? As I said, people of a certain age remember that ad. Right. That's effective best, advertising. Yeah, it was one. It was one of the best ads ever. And you're right. By the way, for those regular listeners, it was a very early episode that we did. We talked about the Master Lock ad. I don't know if it was on the you know the first or second episode or the one where we talked to Rini uh, Anderson, um, but um, yeah, that is an incredibly memorable ad. They never needed to change it. They produced it once, right. and then ran it. They could run it today. And it would have the they didn't have any actors in it, or at least any actors you could see, right? So they didn't have to pay residuals to to anybody, right? I mean, um, you know, unless the unless the you know the locks themselves organized, which you know would have been you know incredibly prescient on their part. Yeah, well, um, and, and call me old fashioned. I miss uh, the halftime show featuring up with people. <laughs> Well, you know, about the idea of not seeing the ads before they before they ran. I mean, we live in a different time, obviously, yes. um, with the with the need to um, get hype, take advantage of social sharing, um, get influencers involved in all those things. But there was a bit of a movement uh, in recent years to, you know, try to hold back and, and, you know, see if there could be you can catch some surprises and then make that surprise a bit of the viral moment. So listen, that's what makes this all interesting as the strategy continues to change as well as the creative direction. Uh, and I, for one, will never get tired of that as much as the ad creators are certainly recognizing that the Super Bowl is a different animal than a regular season game. More people are watching it. Uh, a much broader audience is watching it. Uh, the demographics that hold for a regular season don't necessarily hold for the championship game. Uh, and the ads... Uh, are directed in that way to a, to a broader audience and playing off uh, humor or more universal themes uh, than the typical, say, regular season game. So it's, but I, I love it. I love the creativity uh, and I love the work that comes out. And I like, I like doing my share of bashing ads that I think don't hit the mark. So uh, a fun pastime. Yeah. And one, one more, I, I won't say it's the last prediction for the day, um, but uh I will go out on a limb and say we will not be seeing a commercial from F from FTX no. this Super Bowl. How no. quickly things change, right? It, right? it it was it's been an unbelievable year. I mean, we started off this show first episode talking about crypto and wondering if the sponsorship category was, you know, going to last and. 
In some ways it has, um, but obviously the FTX blow up uh, and all that left in its wake there uh, was a horrible situation. And, you know, the other players in the space obviously have had to kind of pull the reins in on what they're doing, but, you know, they're, they're, the deals haven't all gone away. Um, you know, crypto.com arena is still a sponsorship and it's a long-term sponsorship. Crypto.com is also uh, a sponsor of formula one and various yes. other um, crypto and, platforms are very involved in that space. So. Entitlement of the Miami race. Right. Um, yeah. And so rare just signed, uh, they're a blockchain fantasy sports game. Um, they just signed a $37 million a year sponsorship with the premier league. So. So I don't think that I don't think the problem with crypto is necessarily gone away. But, you know, I think we actually predicted that right, is that there has to be some shaking out in yeah, the category and, and people understanding the category better and getting some actual meat behind what this category even is, because there was not just in the spend, but in the business itself, a lot of, you know, kind of just air um, that people that, that no one really understands. And, and those are the things that need to shake out. Right. And I think we we talked about the fact that you and I have seen other categories come in like gangbusters and sort of like a Roman candle, right? Burn brightly, but burn yeah. quickly. Um, and certainly that's FTX. And um, time will tell if the crypto space recovers. Um, and if so, when they come back, will they come back uh, as a more mature, for lack of a better term, more sophisticated player in the sponsorship space and will properties be more careful on who they accept sponsorship dollars from yeah well they need to be because they can't be burned on the financial side of this and i think it's a huge public relations or oftentimes a big public relations black eye i think in the case of ftx the properties haven't suffered that necessarily um mlb looks weird i mean i think the fact that that FTX was actually on the umpires. It just makes yeah. it's a little laughable. And then the and then the endorsement deals. You know, uh, Brady and and Drew Brees are two of our favorites. Um, you know, they got caught up in this, but there were plenty of other and you know, uh, uh, Steph Curry uh, and many other people that were uh, that were part of the endorsement entourage of FTX as well. Right, but they, but it went beyond endorsements, right? Because they had equity positions. So yeah. that potentially, and we, um, I would love to ask Mike McCann, the lawyer, you know, how much exposure do those people really have? Um, because, you know, it's easy to sue anybody for anything, um, but do they have exposure? I don't, I don't know, but yeah. Well, so, speaking of, speaking of, exposure and lawsuits can we talk quickly about uh about one of our favorite topics in uh in live golf because they're kind of still at it sure they so we know that there have been you know these lawsuits in place um uh, from live and countersuits and so forth but recently courts actually denied um a request to obtain third-party discovery of communications involving members of Augusta National um, as part of its antitrust lawsuit against the PGA Tour. But that, as I mentioned, the request was denied. Um, I mean, this is this is a big thing. I mean, Fincham was uh, was subpoenaed, the commissioner, uh, former commissioner, excuse me, of the PGA Tour, um, uh, as well as uh, members of the policy board and, and so forth. Um, and, you know, when you kind of, you know, Augusta 
National is this classically very private, never says anything uh, organization. And it would have been interesting had a judge or a court allowed uh, this to proceed, but uh, but they denied it. But it, I mean, the thing that's just seems so crazy, it's like the entire arsenal of everything happening from the live side is legal. It's like constantly pressuring lawsuits and doing this and trying to, which seems to me if their claim is that they just want to live to get work together and live side by side and be able to have players play in others, you know, other tours tournaments, that wouldn't be the approach to take, but what do I know? Again, maybe well, I, I, under, I understand your point and right. And you and I approach things very differently than, than they do in that we look for a solution, whereas they're trying to maintain whatever leverage they have here. In my opinion, these lawsuits give them leverage or give them negotiating power that they might not otherwise have. Right. Talk to us and we'll consider dropping the suit or something to that effect. Uh, but again, you know, you and I have had this conversation. I just I, I don't see the long term viability of live golf. Um, if if the ultimate goal is to get a return on the investment, yes, they could run the they could run the property probably, you know, for, for decades, if not centuries, if profit is not an objective. But at some point it has to be right. At some point you you don't want to, you know, because you're not achieving the other objectives, which are, you know, to position Saudi Arabia as a tourist destination or as a, you know, a place where you want to invest in, in sports or other businesses. Um, so I think it's fair to say that it has not been successful on any level up to this point. Yeah, I mean the the private investment fund is is a fund, right? So it's a sovereign wealth fund, of course, but it is a fund, and it has other investors into it. So eventually, yes, um, I think in the near term it can it can go on and and won't run out of money, but eventually it will. Interesting, of course, this weekend, kind of the hero of the PGA Tour side, Rory McIlroy, ended up in a showdown going down to the end of the tournament with the villain of this or who had been a villain on the PGA tour before he defected over to live that being Patrick Reed. And they finished Rory one uh, and Patrick Reed finished second at the, yeah. um, uh, the hero classic in Dubai. Um, pretty interesting that it, that it came down to that. And there yeah. Were, Rory, uh, I think finished 19. Yeah. yeah. 19 under and Patrick 18 under. Yeah. Yeah. That was interesting. Yeah. But you know, Rory, uh, you know, I don't know if it was good for him. Patrick Reed, you know, tried to come over on the practice range and shake his hand and say hi. And then he dropped a tee on the ground and every like blew up all over the internet that he had thrown a tee at him, which really wasn't the case. <laughs> um, but, you know, I don't wait, know. I, wait, wait, what? You're telling me that the internet got something wrong? The, the inter <laughs> well, let's say the internet exaggerated something. I mean, hard to believe, but yes, they did. Yeah. And Patrick so, Reed, um, you refer to him as a villain, but. You know, he's he's not odd job or uh, Blaufogel <laughs> or Dr. No, right? He's more like Dr. Evil or f fat bastard, right? He's more of a he's more of a he Austin Powers villain as opposed Dude, to like a so, he is so James Bond. Sue, he is now going to threaten suing you for the fat bastard <laughs> comparison. <laughs> and it's like every every tournament there's something. There was another incident 
in Dubai with what tree his ball went into that it got stuck in, that he was, I guess, trying to claim that it wasn't the one that it actually went into. And they had proof of it. He wanted, you know, he was saying it went into one that was closer to the hole, I guess. It's always something with this guy. Yeah. Um, And, you know, uh, as we've discussed, right, threatening to sue CNN for $450 million for a a story in which he wasn't even mentioned. (laughs) Right. I, I, there is a legal concept, and I, I know just enough to be dangerous, right? There is a legal con- concept called standing, right? In order for you to bring suit against another party, you have to have what the court calls standing, which is you have to be involved in some way, right? You have to have some claim to damages or or uh, some impact. And, and if you're not even mentioned in this story, that's like, I, I, I don't even know what to compare it to, right? So it's like you know what it's like it's like me suing people magazine for not being named in the sexiest man alive uh, edition right clearly i've been slighted right you definitely now i'm i may rank right if, if there's approximately four billion men on the planet right maybe i'm in the lower quartile but i wasn't mentioned yeah. so i'm going to sue people well, listen. You called him. You compared him to Fat Bastard, but then no, 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 well, no. Yeah, well, maybe, okay, I, maybe yeah, I did. I don't know. We we can go back. Well, we'll let the listeners judge. Anything else um, that you want to mention quickly before we take a break for our guest? Yeah, just real quickly. There was a passing um, this past week. Billy Packer, eighty-two years old, called over thirty Final Fours. Um, I remember him. Uh, as a kid watching him call games with Al McGuire and Dick Enberg on NBC, um, met him a couple of times um, in my sports career. Uh, just a true gentleman, a, a, you know, somebody who knew and loved college basketball as much as anybody. And, uh, you know, and I know it's important to you that for me to also note that he was a Wake Forest so, grad. So um, condolences to his his family and yeah. Um, the the world of sports is a little bit uh, is a is a little bit uh, less rich today than it was before Billy Packer passed away. You know, an unbelievable career, and in a lot of ways, unlikely that he elevated um, uh, and to where he was, and and called that many um, tournament games and Final Fours. You, you know, Wake Forest people actually had a weird relationship with Billy Packer because he, you know, I think there was the feeling that he always should just go out of his way to be so positive. And even though he did lead the demon Deacons to their only final four, or was one of the stars of the team that, um, that made it to the final four, uh, he wasn't quite as loved as he probably should have been because of, uh, because of that. And the fact that he had such a great career. Uh, but, um, I got to know him a little bit when I was working at the ACC office as well as he was very tight with, uh, uh, my boss there, the legendary Skeeter Francis. So, yes. And he also called a hell of a putt-putt game, which if you didn't live <laughs> in North Carolina, you might not have picked that up. But he was the, he was the analyst on the putt-putt, professional putt-putt um, competition, which is yeah, way and, better, way better than pickleball. Oh, uh, we almost did it. We almost property. got through it. No, we weren't going to do that. Okay. Yeah. All right. So let's take a break. We, we've got a great guest coming up. So we'll be back in just a moment. It's time for our guest. So the timing could not be more perfect for our guest today. Just back from another Rolex 24 Hours of Daytona and only days ahead of the 2023 NASCAR season launching in L.A., which, of course, still seems a little weird for me to say that. Um, the EVP of Marketing and Business Development 
um, at Penske Corp. Jonathan Gibson is with us today. Uh, Jonathan has been uh, in this business from all sides, agency at GMR, Brandside, Miller Coors, before jumping over to Team Penske to lead marketing and commercial activity. 15 years later, Jonathan is among Penske's top execs with his hands in a lot of really cool things that we're hoping to hear about today. So Jonathan, welcome to the Sports Biz Chat. Yes, good morning, guys. I think I think if I'm right, I'm episode 53, is that right? You'd know think, better than I, Jonathan. I, I think so. <laughs> I think I've, been, I've, been, I've been listening since the beginning, and it's it's an honor to be a part of well, it. Well, we appreciate Thank that. You. That means that means a lot, and because uh, we know you have a lot of stuff going on. But yeah, season two, episode four, episode overall fifty three. So thanks for that. So listen, let's jump right in because we know your schedule is very busy at this time of year, if not always. So Pensy is coming off of a NASCAR championship with Joey Logano last year. Um, obviously, we're about to launch into this season uh, this year. Uh, second title, by the way, for Logano. Uh, give us an overview of, of what the organization's expectations are, uh, particularly on the uh, on the NASCAR side this year. Yeah, great. Well, first of all, I have to say, you know, 2022 was an amazing year, you know, really across our entire business. You know, if you think about our business, we've got 72,000 employees around the world. If you look at 2022, really across our truck business, our auto business, our racing business, everything was really clicking on all cylinders. And I think if you look at racing specifically, you know, it's it's unbelievable to, to think that after 57 years of being in racing with Roger and his businesses to do something he's never done before and win the NASCAR championship and the IndyCar championship in the same year is something that uh, is an incredible box to check. And, you know, I think if you look at 23, you know, we have all the tools, all the resources to do it again. You know, obviously there's a lot that's got to happen. We've got to execute. But I think if you look at our drivers, you know, our stable of drivers, we've got uh, championship caliber drivers on both the NASCAR and the IndyCar side. Um, you know, I think we have an opportunity to compete for wins really in every race that we're in. Uh, if you look at it from a commercial perspective, um, business-wise, I mean, you guys have been in this business a long time. We have zero inventory available and our NASCAR and IndyCar race race seasons uh, for this year, which speaks to the, the health of our partners. So, you know, we're optimistic. We're starting, uh, obviously we started last weekend with our new Porsche program, but really our NASCAR program starts this weekend at the Coliseum, which by the way, uh, we're the returning winner of that race. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, a great season. Roger Penske and, and his organization has had tremendous success um, in a number of businesses. Uh, in addition to your legendary racing team, you now own IndyCar in the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Um, it was reported that IndyCar is looking to make a significant investment in marketing the IndyCar product. Um, is there anything you can share about those plans and what we can look forward to? Yeah, no, great question, Tim. And, and you know, I, I, I first have to go back to January 6th of, uh, of 2020 when we closed on the acquisition. You know, anytime you do due diligence, on a new opportunity, you know, you do a business plan. And I think nowhere in our business plan did we see a pandemic coming. Um, you know, we had 300,000 seats, 115 suites. Uh, and then on, in March of 2020, the world came to a stop. And if you fast forward to, to August of 2020, August 22nd, when we hosted our first 500 as stewards of the Speedway, uh, we had 2,500 people on the stands, including the wow. teams. And so obviously it was a tough year, but I'll tell you, you know, we'll talk about Roger later. You know, being the amazing leader that he is, he's invested more than $30 million into the business in the last two years, all really focused on the guest experience. Uh, how do we make the guest experience better? Um, and so, uh, 
you know, as you look at our business going forward, you know, we really see a need to enhance the marketing and the engagement we have with our fans. And so, um, you know, one stat that if you look at our television viewership over the last three or four years, on average per race, we've added over 300,000 viewers. And so we're going to really accelerate that with investment from a creative perspective, really focused on enhancing the tune into our properties. Uh, in addition, we're adding digital headcount uh, to our business, really to enhance the content and the engagement we have. Um, and then we'll talk about it in a bit, but we have an unscripted series that's going to launch here uh, in, a, in, in about a month. And they're already filming it right now. It's going to really allow us to dive deeper into what's happening as the teams make that that road trip as they prepare for the Indianapolis 500. Yeah. I know, um, so, excuse me, David, I'm sorry. I know that uh, David's got a sort of a follow-up, but we have a tradition here on the show when when one of our guests says, uh, great question, we we like to give credit to the person <laughs> who actually wrote the question. And if I'm not mistaken, this is the first time this season I've had to say, David wrote that question. So, so I want to give I want to give credit where credit is due. But, you know, apparently the you know the 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 blind squirrel and all that, right? Okay. Might be true because I think you you know didn't acknowledge one that was uh, that was done last. Not week. true. Not true. Um, David's you know, being on his best tape. behavior. We got, we got tape on these things. Uh, that's why we record them. Um, anyway, I'm going to go ahead and just leap right into that question because you just mentioned the uh, 100 Days to Indy. Really excited to see what that is because there's been some great success. Obviously, F1 with Drive to Survive. Breakpoint is out now on the tennis side. Give us any more details on that. I'm sure you were highly, highly involved in pulling all that together. So would love to would love to hear about what fans might uh, be able to expect from this series. Yeah, you know, David, over the last two or three years, um, we've had conversations really with pretty much every streaming platform, uh, production companies really across the country and across the world. Um, but we were really purposeful in what we wanted to do as we build our content. And so, you know, we've, we've have a strategy for unscripted series, scripted series, motion pictures. But if you look at unscripted series, you know, the three lens that we looked at it through, you know, I think number one is we wanted to talk to a, a younger audience. You know, we felt like that was really important. We didn't want to be, talking to the same fans that are watching every race already. And so we wanted it to be different. You know, number two is, you know, we wanted it to air real time, right? We didn't want to film it in March of this year and air in March of next year. We felt like it was important to really uh, be on the air this year. And then lastly, um, what do we own? We didn't want it to be, you know, another drive to survive or another break point or what have you. And so what do we own? We own the greatest sporting event in the world, the Indianapolis 500, the largest single day sporting event in the world. And so we wanted to build a, a, a series around that. And so um, in the conversations, we've met the, the team from uh, Nextstar, which, um, you know, Sean Compton, who's the CEO, and, and uh, you know, then the team from CW, and then we really got engaged with the team from Vice. And if you look at the, the digital platforms that Vice has globally and who they talk to, there's no one that touches the 18 to 25-year-old consumer in a, in a consistent fashion like Vice. I mean, a stat they always always blows me away is their Instagram, or their I'm sorry, their TikTok handle in Indonesia. I think has a million followers, just Indonesia, right? Wow. So if you think about the reach they have and what we can do to talk to a new consumer uh, around this is amazing. And they started filming in January. Uh, they'll be filming this week in Palm Beach at our spring training event at Thermal, uh, which is a, a facility out there. And and uh, I think it's going to be awesome, right? It's going to be. A, a, deep dive into the lives of our drivers and our teams as they prepare for the Indianapolis 500. 
Formula One here in the United States has has seen some great growth over the last few years, and David has played a part and has an ongoing part in that. Um, but is there anything that IndyCar can draw from a very distinct and different open wheel racing series as you look to maybe recapture some of the past glory that IndyCar uh, demonstrated as an open wheel racing series here in the U.S.? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think you can learn from every sport, right? I mean, everybody's doing good stuff around, you know, sticking ball and every type of sport. But I think Formula One, uh, there's definitely things we can learn from. I, I think that if you look at what they did with Drive to Survive and the timing of it, they really hit it on the bullseye, right? I mean, right when COVID started. But also, they're also doing some really smart things from a content and digital perspective. Uh, and their entrance and growth in the U.S., uh, I think, has been something that uh, they've, they've executed well on. And so we've got good relationships with them. Um, I look at it as a positive. I think that the interest in motorsports uh, that they've, they've brought uh, and to different consumers, I think, is great for everybody. And so, um, you know, there's room for all of us to be successful. And, and I think that, uh, you know, we'll continue to learn from each other um, from a marketing perspective and also from an operational perspective as well. Thanks. And then a quick follow-up before I hand it back to David. Is there any any plans for IndyCar to to expand internationally? You know, um, first of all, uh, we're, we've got a, a long-term market strategy and where we want to take the series. And I, I think that uh, our primary focus is North America. Um, we do and have on, ongoing interesting opportunities internationally. And if it's got relevancy and, and it's strategic in nature, we'll definitely look at it. Um, but I think our primary focus is North America. Yeah, I think strategically that uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and then your description of what you're doing with the 100 Days to Indy and the focus on that, um, just very, very logical, particularly in the face of all these other things that are out there. So uh, nicely done on that. Um, let's let's flip around and talk about the captain a little bit. I mean, you work for this legend, Roger Penske, who I think – anybody that it follows business would say this guy is just like the man right he's he's you know he's there and he has this this mode of operation that i think just you know earns universal respect give us some insight as to what that's like someone known for that level of precision um and and any wisdom you can share that uh, that you've learned because i think it'd be very valuable for our listeners and i know for me as well yeah no listen um i feel, feel very fortunate you know he's an amazing leader an amazing person and I've spent 15 years working for the organization and for him and and uh consider myself very lucky you know his leadership what he does every day from an integrity perspective transparency perspective and his, his family uh, and how engaged they are with what we do it's just something that uh I I really consider myself lucky you know if you if you think about you know what makes him such an effective and uh, um amazing leader I mean I think there's a couple things I I think that you know, his work ethic is legendary, right? I, there's no one in our company that can keep up with them. And um, you think about, I'd mentioned earlier, we've got 72,000 employees around the globe. We operate uh, in nine countries, four continents. And his ability every single day to be in the weeds of what's happening in our business, to know our people. Um, and he always tells me, he's like, Jonathan, I, I don't want to be in the meeting. I want to be in the pre-meeting. I want to be there when we're making the plans. And he wants to be in the details of that. You know, the, the other thing I would say is that, you know, out of anybody I've ever been around, um, 
his care of people. He always says human capital is our most important asset. And if you, if you look at our company, you know, it's legendary. We've got most of our leadership have been here 20, 30 years, and they're bright, high integrity, hardworking, attention to detail. And so, um, you know, that that's another trait that I think is uh, pretty amazing. Um, you know, the, the other thing I would say is, you know, obviously we operate, uh, we've got over 425,000 trucks on the road. We sell over 500,000 cars a year. We've got complex businesses in some ways, but his ability to take complex situations and simplify them and be able to, uh, you know, communicate that to our field and operate uh, is, is something that that uh, has always amazed me, his ability to do that, you know. And so, you know, really for me, you know, outside of my parents and my family, I mean, I got to say he's, you know, really most influential person in my life. And, and uh, I continue to learn from him every day. He's two doors down in the office and his energy, he's popping in the office multiple times a day with ideas, all focused on, you know, how do you make the business better? And, you know, how do you continue to grow the business? And so, you know, we, we started with one Chevrolet dealership in the sixties and now we've got, uh, you know, as I mentioned, 72,000 employees. It's uh, it's an amazing story. Truly. Um, let's talk a little bit more about you though, Jonathan, you have a long and storied career. Uh, you've been on the brand side, the agency side, and now obviously for the last several years for uh, working for a team. Um, as well as the other businesses uh, within the organization. What are some of the things that you learned in your past experience, hard skills, soft skills, things that you have brought to bear on the team side that maybe some people who uh, who are on the brand side or the agency side and are thinking about, you know, at some point adding team to their resume? Yeah, you know, I think the first thing is work ethic. You know, I've always had the mentality, you know, my dad was the same way growing up. He was in the Navy for 30 plus years and, you know, work ethic. I, I never wanted anybody to outwork me. Right. And I, I was willing to, you know, earlier in my career um, and now, I mean, willing to get in early, stay late, do what you have to do. And I think it, what it does is not, not only does it allow you to produce, but it allows you to, you know, be a role model for others. I, I think in the organization, um, you know, I'm somebody that thrives on collaboration and teamwork. You know, I, I, uh, I took a job earlier in my career uh, to start a business for Omnicom and I was on my own. And I realized after about three months that I'm not a person that can operate like that. I, I need to be in a team environment. Um, I thrive on that and I want to be around people all the time. And so uh, that really keeps me, me energized and that collaboration. Uh, and then, you know, I think that you mentioned earlier precision, I, you know, attention to detail to me, uh, something that's really been a differentiator. Um, and I, I think that uh, it's been so important, I think, in my success. Um, but those are probably three of the main main traits that have allowed me to, to do it. And I'll, I'll tell you, you know, you mentioned being on all sides of the, the business and um, it kind of happened by accident. Um, but I really look at it as an opportunity for me as I, you know, as we're talking to partners, as we're talking to the media, you know, we're looking at our next rights deal uh, or what have you. Um, you know, to be able to see it through their lens, I think has been valuable uh, for me. Yeah, you picked up some some great experience. We're, we're actually going to go because we've covered in a very, very concise way some really great things, really the topics that we wanted to cover. And we appreciate your ability to deliver on that. So we actually want to go ahead and um, move to our what we call our standard closing two questions. Now, I've known you for a long time. I feel like I've known you for a long time and I yeah. know how old I am, which is freaking old. <laughs> and therefore, so it is a long time. But I don't necessarily know the entire start. We love to get 
uh, you know, people's actual story. So this, the first question is, Where did your career get started? Where to start it? Well, I mentioned earlier, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. My dad was a officer in the Navy for 30 plus years. And um, I went to the University of Georgia. Go dogs, by the way. Um, yeah. And uh, um, I knew when I was in college that I really had a fascination for business, but I always was a, I played sports. I was a massive sports fan. Um, and through somebody that I knew, I got an introduction. I think Tim, you used to work here, uh, or I think you did. Uh, I worked for Lonnie Cooper. Um, yeah. Yep. And uh, right out of college, I had a chance to intern with him with that business. And, um, you know, uh, it was six months. It was a, a great experience. You know, it was early in those days of that business. Um, and I think it was in, uh, might've been 97. Um, and at that time I heard about an opportunity to be the tournament tournament director for a developmental piece of the LPGA tour. And while I was there, it would pay for my grad school at West Virginia. And so I said, why not? I'll do it. It gives me experience. I got a graduate degree. Um, and it was an amazing opportunity. I met some great people. And out of that, I met Mike Boykin, uh, and Greg Bush from the, the GMR world. And, you know, I'll tell you, they offered me an opportunity to move to Milwaukee and uh, work on the Miller business. Um, and I did that for a few years. And after three years, Miller said, hey, we want to hire you. Um, and I worked at Miller for seven or eight years, ended up leading the sports marketing for the Miller Light brand uh, based out of Milwaukee, uh, which was a great experience. Um, obviously, you know, all the people that have come through that, that business, like Laletta and others. Um, and so I learned a ton and I got to know Roger. Uh, and the team at Penske, as we were dealing with some challenging times on the driver front. In fact, I remember Roger called me over here for a meeting. Um, you know, I was 28 or 29 or 30 years old at the time, maybe a little older, but um, so intimidated at the time. But I, I obviously built a relationship and a rapport with him at the time through a challenging discussion. And I realized uh, after about seven or eight years at Miller, I wanted to get out of the beer business. I didn't want to be, you know, in the beer business forever. And so ended up uh, um, taking a job within the Omnicom network, which I mentioned earlier. And that was a short term. And about six months into it, Roger called and said, hey, are you happy uh, doing what you're doing? We'd love to take a run at you. And the rest is history. That was 15 years ago. And so, uh, you know, one of the best decisions uh, I ever made. I have to tell you, David, I don't know if you remember this. Uh, I certainly do. Um, in 1999, uh, there was an opportunity on your team at SFX, and uh, I was working at GMR. Wait, is this time. another story? Is this another story where I didn't hire someone I should have hired? <laughs> I get those a lot. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, listen, so I remember where I was. I remember. And told me that, uh, um, you know, you're going with somebody else. But, you know, to be honest with you, for me, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I grew up in D.C., and I, I don't know that it was right for me to go home. I wanted to continue doing what I was doing, and sometimes things like that happen that are best for you in the long term, and, and uh, always admired you and what you did you know, for McDonald's and others. And so, uh, um, you know, enjoyed getting to know you, and, and uh, that's really my career. Well, I appreciate that, and I actually recall that we had the conversation about uh, uh, going a different direction. So, um, not that I'm not that I'm happy to have that memory spark <laughs> right here. But listen, your story is great. And you've obviously, wait, Tim's going to say a real wise ass thing. I, I'm excited about it. So, Jonathan, what you're saying, Jonathan, what you're saying is, is David has been instrumental in many people's success. 
by not hiring them. <laughs> no, no. Listen, by making poor hiring decisions. He has listen, he has, I'm sure he had a thanks for coming on the show, by the way. <laughs> I'm sure he had a really qualified candidate, right? So listen, I was just second or third. Well, now listen, I, everything I mean, well, for a reason, as my dear mother would say. Well, listen, you you obviously put yourself in in great positions to uh uh, to get where you were and 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 i think it's a, a sign of of roger's leadership as well to mm -hmm. have identified that and and know when to uh know when to come after you um and so you're 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 very welcome that by not doing that it opened up that great opportunity for um uh, for you to move over to penske but no those are uh, very fascinating memories but i am very happy that you still decided to come on the show last question <laughs> last question is one piece of advice that you would give someone, particularly a younger person looking to break into the business? Yeah, you know, um, I had this conversation. I've got a 13 and a uh, 10 year old at home and I, I tell them the same thing. For me, there's two things that you that uh, you have to bring to your job every day. And as we're looking for candidates, it's something we look for and it's effort and attitude, right? Um, those are two things that you control. And I mentioned earlier, work ethic but also attitude. You want to have an attitude that's additive to the culture. It's collaborative in nature. Um, and those are things that you do control. And to me, um, you know, as ever, I'm evaluating a person for a role. Obviously, there's their skill set, there's their experience, there's their capabilities. But for me, it's their effort and their attitude that's most important. Great advice. Great. Really great advice. Listen, Jonathan, we know you have a really busy schedule. We'll be pulling for you. Great uh, luck. Uh, in Los Angeles coming week on the NASCAR side and with everything uh, happening on the IndyCar side as well. Um, appreciate it. And, and congrats on a very, very successful career. And I'm sure a lot more to come. Yeah. Thanks guys. Really appreciate being on the show. I lo love listening to it and uh, a big honor to be a part of it. Thank you, Jonathan. Take care. That was a really fun uh, and uh, interesting discussion uh, with Jonathan Gibson of uh, Penske Corporation. Um, you know, he's someone that I've known for a long time, and it was great to be able to catch up with him uh, and uh, learn all the exciting things that he has going on. Uh, but it is now that time of the show where we like to take a little peek ahead. So I'm going to ask you, Tim, what do you have your eyes on? Well, two things. One, personally, I'm going to be uh, taking a trip up to Ithaca this weekend and watch the Big Red play hockey. Nice. I haven't been there in over a month. Um, so they'll be taking on RPI and Union. Um, they came off a pretty tough loss to Harvard this past weekend, but that's okay. Uh, and then getting back in time on Sunday to watch the Bush Light clash at the Coliseum, second year that NASCAR will be running that event in the Coliseum. And I think you and I talked about last year how fun it was to watch on TV, and so I'm looking forward to that. How about yourself? Well, thanks. I am. Uh, I'm actually heading over to the UK uh, this weekend. We'll be over there next week as we have a lot of uh, content to capture uh, and a lot of meetings to uh, uh, to conduct. Um, so uh, we'll be doing an international show again next week, which will uh, which ought to be fun. I, I too am looking forward to the Bushlight Clash. I mean, I know it gets weird every year. For guys like you and me to think about the season kind of opening, not in Daytona, mm -hmm. uh, but starting in L.A. before coming back to Daytona. But, you know, they've just done a great job in trying these new things. And I'm sure a lot of the old 
guard is like this is silly and it doesn't make sense but they needed it they needed to try these things and i think they're pulling them off one thing that um i think we touched on a little bit last week but i'm actually getting a kick out of this whole lead up of the gronk kick of destiny and so <laughs> i'm curious as to what more you know ads they're going to release on this um well, we'll probably make our Super Bowl predictions next week. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make a prediction because you made several today. I say misses, but um, I just say misses. I think he's gonna I think he's gonna mar 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 nor it's maybe Norwood it <laughs> nor yeah he's gonna nor I'm thinking he's gonna get that much on it because yeah. Scott Norwood actually got a lot on it. He just kind of sliced it a little, right? Yeah, kinda, yeah. Kind of. I'm it. I'm thinking more. Gary Delabate or uh, Fifty Cent, Fitty, as you probably <laughs> refer to him, uh, throwing out a first pitch at, at a Mets yeah. game, right? If you, if, yeah. for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, uh, Google Baba Booey and Fifty Cent Mets uh, first pitch. And that's that's my prediction for that's Gronk's legendary. kick. That's the that's the gold standard of boxed. It would be really funny if that's what happens. Anyway. All right. Well, listen, that brings us to a close. Thank you again to Penske Corporation's Jonathan Gibson. Big year for that organization, and we wish him the best uh, through all of his endeavors in 2023. Thank you mostly, of course, to all of you for listening and sharing your thoughts with us. Keep it coming because it is what makes this worth it uh, for the two of us. And of course, be sure to like us and share the content. So until next time, I'm DP, he's McGee, and we'll talk soon. Thanks to you.